Well, good morning, World of Life. We're uh, back here in this place of being recording um, online messages. I really hope that was a thing of the past. I've just been away, as you know, and so last weekend when we were together again, it was so wonderful to be with everybody. But we thought it was prudent given the fact that there have been a few um, people that had been at the meeting on Friday that had subsequently tested positive for us to take a break for this week from meeting in person so we could have a full 14 days between the two meetings, which gives anybody that needs to the 10 days that they require to quarantine before we gather again next Friday, which we're going to do. But I'm also disappointed because this was Hannah's last Friday and it would have been our opportunity to um, pray her out of the life of the church and bless her. And uh, because she's my daughter, that would be something very special. And so although we can't be together to do this, I am going to do it anyway and pray for Hannah as we release her from will of life into what God has for her um, as she moved to the U.S. to go study there. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for Hannah. I want to thank you for um, just the incredible ways that she's contributed to will of life. Uh, all her cupcakes that many people have tasted, her beautiful smile, the way that she's loved and taught so many of the children the life of the church, being a part of worship team, etc., etc., Lord. But also in the way the will of life has contributed to Hannah. We thank you, Lord, for what's been put inside her, what's been sown into her that has helped her grow from a young girl into a young woman, Lord. And as we release her now, we do with a confidence, Lord God, that what has been established in her um, will only flourish as you transplant her now into another context. And we pray for the time that she's in America, that she would find a spiritual family there that she can be a part of, that will care for her and watch over her, and that she can likewise contribute to. We commit her now into your hands, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So the title of my preach today is The Testing of Your Faith. And it comes from a text in James chapter 1, which I'll come to in a moment. The Testing of Your Faith. I've got a friend of mine who's, I think, one of the toughest guys that I've ever met. He's a parabat, done so many things. He's got hands like meat cleavers and fingers like pieces of wood. And I know some of you have met him. A few years ago, he had an, an accident in his leg that left him with some like massive scarring. And, you know, there was surgery had to take place and damaged his nerves so that he can't even feel. There's no feeling from his knee downwards. And despite that and the fact that he turned 69 this year, he still did a grueling three-day mountain bike race with me in May this year and finished it. I say all that just to point out that he's a tough guy. But sometime before that, he faced the greatest trial of the soul, I think, that he's ever faced. And it wasn't the sort of situation that I really would wish upon anybody. And it was a difficult thing to go through. But despite being strong in body and mind and independent, this situation brought this friend of mine to his knees. And in the end, I think this trial was one of the most beneficially transformative events that ever took place in my friend's life. And it's perhaps that that James has in mind when he writes a scripture in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, which we're going to read together now. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers. And he means and includes obviously our sisters there as well. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, don't give up, don't take shortcuts, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I love how J.B. Phillips paraphrases verse 2 when he says it like this. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. 
Now I'm sure I don't need to do a great exegesis to, to explain to you guys what trials are. We're all too familiar with the troubles that we face in this life. The things that come upon us and break into our peace and our comfort and our happiness. Now on the surface, the command to count it all joy when we face these kind of troubles must be one of the most difficult commands in all of Scripture. It's kind of right up there with the command to give thanks in all circumstances. Not just in the good circumstances, but in the difficult ones as well. And the fact that we're meeting online this week is the evidence that we're in the midst of some trials right now. Some people that we love have got COVID. Some people are facing that sickness. But beyond that, there's all sorts of inconvenience that has come as well. Precious plans have been disrupted. I know one couple in the church were being married on Friday and Sajith was doing their wedding. And now he's not going to be able to do it because he's quarantining. These things that we've planned for and hoped for and depended upon have not come to pass. But maybe you haven't faced any trials recently. But don't worry, they're coming your way. And I'm not just being negative, although from a COVID point of view, that is a good thing to be. Um, no, no, I'm, uh, I'm just expressing what Jesus warned us about, that in this life, there will be trouble. And the trials that James is speaking about are actually, in many ways, unavoidable. So he's not talking so much about stupidity trials, those things that come upon us because we just, whatever, we're, uh, we're texting while we're driving and in the dark and going around a corner in a busy traffic or something. Um, but even then, even in those circumstances where it is because of our stupidity, just add on some repentance and then the, re the principles remain pretty much the same. The reason why these trials are unavoidable is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world full of broken and sinful people in a creation that no longer operates the way that God intended it or designed it to operate. And to make matters worse, and I know this doesn't feel like a lot of good news right now, but to make matters worse, Satan exploits this brokenness to ensure that we face one obstacle after another. And although this fallen world is not our permanent home, it is only our temporary home, it is our home for now. God didn't evacuate us the moment that we came to Christ. And as Jesus told his disciples and before he left them, although they are not of this world, they are in this world. And that's true of us. Although we are not of this broken world, we are in this world. And Jesus' reason as to why we left here um, is explicitly stated, that we might be his witnesses. And I thank God that Jesus did that, that he left witnesses here, that there would be somebody here to pray for those that have not yet come to salvation, that there would be somebody here to share the gospel message, to share the message that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that God himself, Jesus who is part of the Godhead, stepped down, took on human form and lived a sinless life. And the only man that never deserved death went into the cross, this most terrible of deaths, the sacrificial death in our place to bear the punishment we deserved. Not to set an example for love, although he did do that, and not to conquer Satan and he did triumph over him, but to bear the penalty that our sin deserved so that God in forgiving us could remain just and so the gospel message that is only through Jesus Christ who can be saved is something that's carried by us who are left behind in this broken world. And that is why for now, this is our home. And so we live in a world that sucks at times. But instead of being frustrated and angry and irritated and sad when we face these trials, we're commanded to count it as all joy. To face even bad news with a kind of holy optimism. 
I think it was Dallas Willard who described peace and joy as, as an inner condition that comes from knowing that in the end, it will all be okay. And it's that optimism, that holy optimism that God wants us to carry into every trial we face. Why? Well, number one, God is using the trials that we face to make us more like Jesus. See, it's not God's intent to frustrate you and to make things difficult for you when he allows trials to come your way. Actually, our Heavenly Father is using every and any circumstance to conform us into the Son that He loves. Every adversity, every affliction, every sickness, failure, and even success is used by Him towards achieving that end, to make us more like His Son. And He will achieve it. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But why does God want us to become like His Son? And is it worth it? All of the trials and the afflictions that we might face. Well, let's check on a few things that we do know. Number one, that God does love us. Um, and that surely cannot be in doubt. The fact that he gave up his only son to die in our place that we might have eternal life is the promise of that. As Romans 8 tells us, having given us his son, how much more will he not give us all things? And then goes on to speak about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Friend, I hope you've settled that today. I hope you've settled the fact that you are loved by God. Not that he loves people, but that he loves you. Because everything that goes on from this point is um, based on the fact that you understand that God loves you. Number one, he loves us. Number two, he wants what's best for us. Not short-term gratification, but ultimate joy. And sometimes, as we know, that means passing through suffering and sacrifice in the present to get to the greater and the lasting joy. And this is not really that difficult com uh, um, concept to understand, is it? As parents and sportsmen, you'd know this. Parents, we understand that we love our children by disciplining them. As difficult and painful as it may be at the moment, we believe that it's good for them because we see something that perhaps they cannot see at that time. And that is the harvest of righteousness that comes afterwards. The athlete endures Trials of training, the pain and the sacrifice because of the opportunity to compete for a prize. He's able to get through it easily. So he loves us. He wants the best for us. And number three, he knows that Christ-likeness or alignment with Christ is the only thing that will bring us perfect joy and peace in this life. You see, God has created every human being with fundamental needs. I'm not talking about our physical needs for air and food and water. I'm talking about our soul needs. And most psychologists and psychiatrists agree that these are the very basic of our needs. Our need to belong. Our need to be loved. And our need to have some sense of meaning or purpose in our lives. And peace and joy comes when those needs are satisfied. And they come perfectly when those needs are perfectly satisfied. Now, of course, we can try and satisfy those needs illegitimately. The world is full of opportunities to do that. And the Apostle John expresses that amazingly in the first of his epistles in chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17 when he writes this, and I'm reading from the Amplified Version. He says, for, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, craving for sensual gratification, and the lust of the eyes, greedy longings of the mind, and the pride of life, assurance in one's own resources, or in the stability of earthly things, these do not come from the Father, but are from the world itself. And the world passes away and disappears, 
and with it the forbidden cravings, the passionate desires, the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God carries out his purposes in, um, and carries out his purposes in this life, abides and remains forever. And John contrasts the kind of life, this life where we fulfill our needs illegitimately with the life of the Christian who has progressed. In the previous chapter, he speaks about the path of maturity as we go from children to young men to fathers. Paul brings the same idea in Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 when he states that the goal of his discipling is that we may present everyone perfect um, or everyone mature in Christ Jesus. But that word mature is the Greek word teleos, which actually means, it's translated elsewhere, perfect, and is used in this text by James with the word perfect. When he says, know that the testing of your faith, or the trials that come to test your faith, produce steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, teleos, mature, and complete, and lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. <laughs> Imagine being able to give that to your child. That would be the expression of perfect love, wouldn't it? And that's what God wants for us. And that's why every trial is used and none is wasted. I don't know about you, but I find great consolation in knowing that none of the difficulties and the trials that I face have to be wasted. When we see the value of the outcome, it changes how we perceive the trial. As someone once said, our values determine our valuations. If we value comfort more than character, Warren Weasby says, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter and not better. And that last point is sobering. The understanding that my response or my perception of trials is the key to turning a trial into a triumph. The truth is we all probably know Plenty of people that have faced hardships in their life and have gone the other way. Instead of counting a joy, they have become angry or bitter or full of self-pity. And these sinful responses have opened the door to sinful actions. One of my current Old Testament readings, which I read the Bible, is from Exodus. And the other day I was reading in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 31. And it says this, Moses and Aaron had come to the people and shared about God's plan to deliver them. And it says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And I paused at that moment because, like, I know the rest of the story. That this whole generation set free from Pharaoh through this mighty, powerful work of God would not enter into the promised land because of their rebellious unbelief. And so my journal that day, as I read it earlier this week, I wrote this down. I said they believed based on what they'd heard and the signs they'd seen. But at the first obstacle, they gave up. This is fair weather faith that believes as long as what is believed comes quickly and easily. Continued in my journal, and I wrote this. God hardly ever allows us to remain in that space. He tests our faith to reveal to us if it is genuine or not. And if it is not, it gives us the opportunity to refine our faith and remove the dross that impairs the gold. This generation of Israel remained fair weather faith people until their death with few exceptions. It seems strange given the fact that they had known such hardship, forced labor, control, facing orders to kill their sons, etc. You would think that enduring these hardships would have produced some steel or at least some greater perspective. It seems, however, that something negated the opportunity these hardships offered to produce godly character. 
Was it because they didn't, as James would one day instruct, rejoice when they face hardships of many kinds? Maybe without the rejoicing, hardships make us weaker in soul. Slaves can't rejoice in suffering. Only sons can. Whatever it was, the faith of this generation was, apart from Joshua and Caleb, weak. When they were tested, they moaned about their circumstances, rebelled against their leaders, and disobeyed God. You see, if your attitude to trials is not affected by your status as sons, then it's impossible to see that God is using this for your good. It's impossible to count it for joy. And then the trials only produce, as it did with Israel, bitterness and rebellion. And that points to one more reason why the trials are actually a sign of God's love for us. Enduring smaller trials is the evidence that our faith is genuine and that we are sons. If we go back to parenting for a moment. Parents know the value of letting their children fight appropriate battles when they're young. If they don't, then their independence or adulthood will only be surface deep. And when the real trials come, they find themselves facing all sorts of struggles. However we raise our children, they for the most part figure out how to navigate their way through society. That's simply self-preservation. So when two 18-year-olds stand before us, one raised God's way and one raised in human wisdom, they may seem very similar. But as somebody once said, you only know what's in the toothpaste tube when you squeeze it. And it's only when the trials and the testing comes, the difficulties at work or in marriage or in the finances or in their health and whatever area, that we'll know who was raised God's way and who was raised in the way of humankind. Those that were raised in unconditional love and consistent discipline, uh, that were taught to face their trials with joy, will be able to navigate their way no matter how rough the seas become. Jesus warned of a similar thing when he um, spoke about those that receive, that hear the word and even receive it with joy, but produce no fruit because the, the, the plant of their faith is, is choked by the pleasures and the difficulties of this life. When I think about people in Will of Life, people who call Will of Life their home, one of the worst outcomes for me would be somebody who has been a part of this church for a long time, who sits in, um, in, the, in the chairs here, and maybe for years, but has never come to a saving faith. I've encountered only a few people like that. But then again, still too many people that have come to me and said, actually, we never believed. So for that reason alone, we can be grateful to God that the trials reveal our inner condition. Better in this life that that truth is revealed so we have time still to come to Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 and says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? This genuine faith, says Peter in his first letter, is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. If gold, which doesn't last, needs to be tested or purified by fire to have the dross removed from it so that its glory can fully be seen, how much more our faith, which will endure to eternity. Let me finish with one last really important comment about where the power comes from to remain steadfast in the times of trials. James is probably one of the most in-your-face kind of books that you're going to read. In the Bible, I've read that Luther wasn't even sure it should be included in the canon of Scripture. And that's because some of the things that, say, that James says seems to contradict um, the great themes that we see in the rest of Scripture 
and especially the books, other books of the New Testament. James 2.17, for example, says that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's what Luther objected to, that um, the idea that our faith in any way whatsoever should depend on works before, during, or after um, our salvation. And maybe it was because Luther, and if you go and read his story, you, you see that he had tried so hard through self-discipline and self-effort to subdue the flesh, and it failed. And when he had this revelation, which was brought by the Holy Spirit using the Scriptures, that um, we are saved by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and he encountered the, the, the inner power that comes once we are truly saved to live a holy life, he wasn't going to allow us to go back into that dependence upon our own flesh again. But is James really saying in that scripture in James 2 that we're saved by faith plus works? Or is he saying that when we are truly saved, when there is true faith, that it must manifest in fruit? In the same way that a good tree will bear fruit, a good life that has been redeemed and a man or woman that has been born again by Christ must bear the fruit of holiness in their lives. Well, if we use scripture to interpret scripture, and that is one of the best ways of um, trying to understand some of these difficult um, matters in Scripture, we will see that that's exactly what James meant, that the fruit of the transformed life should be good works. The whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a story of a rescue, initiated, sustained, and completed by God Himself through Christ's sacrifice and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So likewise, our text today that we read from James chapter 1, is not to be interpreted as a call to human resolve and strength. I've told you about this friend of mine that was so strong and is, and is so strong in so many ways in the human level. But the trial that he went through brought him to his knees. It wasn't his strength that enabled him to endure. It was when he came to the place of surrender that he finally was able to do us. And that's what James is inviting us into today when he says, count it as all joy. Don't rely upon your strength and your resolve, but instead come in a posture of surrender and of trust. That surrender and trust was something Israel could not do because they, um, they had allowed slavery to define them. Many years ago, Linda and I would go to one of the townships near our area in Durban, South Africa, to go and minister to the small kids there. One of the things that we would do is, so often as the case, is take a bag of sweets with us to give them a treat and just to, to bless them. And um, the problem was, instead of lining up neatly in a queue and taking one by one like this, they would swamp us, almost like a riot. Almost, you'd almost be like knocking kids over to get them back again. And that was because they simply did not believe that we had enough. Every experience they'd ever had in the, the world where survival um, was the, the mantra, there was never enough. You had to get it while you could. And they were sure that if they stood at the back of the queue, they were going to be found short. They were not going to get one of the sweets. And so they went and they grabbed and they gripped. It took, us, it took a while for them to learn that we always brought more than enough. So everybody, even the last, received. Slaves behave that way. Sons do not. Sons know that the Father provides for them. Sons of God understand that God would never command us to do His will in any area where he does not also supply to us the power and the grace necessary to fulfill it. One of the most important scriptures in the Bible is from Philippians 2 verse 12 to 13. It's a text that I've shared before that I pray over my children as often as I can. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation now. Dear children, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. 
obeying God with deep reverence and fear. The ESV says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But this is the key in verse 13. You can't read verse 12 without verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And so friends, as you and I face trials of various kinds and they're all around us all the time, never take your eyes off the prize that we are being formed by God to be increasingly like his son so that the fruit of righteousness, peace and joy will manifest with ever increasing measure in our lives. Never forget where the power to endure comes from. Stop your striving and your straining and step into surrender and into trust. Exercise your faith in those moments that God is working something good. Stop your moaning and complaining and step into rejoicing and worshiping the Good Shepherd, the one who leads us to green pastures and to quiet streams. I want to pray with you now. I know that some of you are facing those trials right now. Some of you will come to them. I know this week we have been facing a trial like that. And it has been such an, an exercise of faith and of trust in God to be able to bring it before him and say, God, you are doing something in the midst of it. I count it as a joy and be able to trust God with the outcome of this. And I want to pray for you today that you too can do that. So if you don't mind for a moment, won't you close your eyes and just pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to bring before you all those that are part of Well of Life and that are listening to this message and perhaps those that are looking in or listening to the, the YouTube video of this preach. I don't know what trials they're going through. They might be incredibly large and they might be relatively small. But I know that every trial requires endurance and every trial is difficult. That's why it's called a trial. I want to pray that because of the truth of your word, the truth of their changed status as a son or a daughter of God, that they would, instead of moaning and groaning and striving in their own strength in the face of this trial, Lord, I pray that they would surrender themselves to you. They would trust you with what they are going through. They would, um, they would count it as joy and they would worship you in the midst of their trial. And Lord, I pray for those testimonies that will come of situations that have been radically turned around, of, um, of how people are able to look back and say that um, I've been through many wonderful things and God's accomplished something through those. But it's been in the times of testing and trial that he's accomplished the deepest works in my life and brought me into a closer place with Jesus Christ. I pray for those testimonies, Lord God. I pray for those as well today that don't yet know you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior, that haven't met the man who took their place upon the cross, that bore their sin and the punishment their sin deserves so they could be forgiven. And I pray that today that they would reach out to you. Maybe it's a trial that's brought you to visit this church today and to listen to this message. And how wonderful then, how beautiful that trial will appear to you one day if it was that that led you by the hand to meet Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so my friend, I'm inviting you today to call upon the name of the Lord by praying this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that though he did not deserve death because he was perfect, he still went to the cross in my place and died on that cross, becoming sin, bearing my sin, 
and my punishment, the just punishment that my sin deserved. So that as I come to you today, as I put my faith in that finished work, his death upon the cross, his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of your throne, that as I do that, as I put my faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, that I can be forgiven. I can be reconciled to you, God, and adopted into your family. And so I choose today to trust Jesus Christ and to make him my Lord and my Savior. And I'm so grateful today that I've become your son or your daughter. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.